you got to be spontaneous and you got to be creative because it is in the spontaneity that the magic happens, that the connections are made. You are now listening to We Are Crayons, the podcast. Conversations with Trinidad and Tobago's creative thinkers and makers. We'll delve into their processes, their struggles, and what drives them to execute continually as creative individuals. I'm your host, Danu McNichol. Do enjoy. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Naima Thompson, educator, drama specialist. <laughs> Can I say that? <laughs> yes, go for it. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> All right. So, Naima, welcome. Thank you for taking Thank the time. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Thanks for having awesome. me. So, let's start with who was Naima as a child. <laughs> Lord have his mercy. Here we are. Right. So, <laughs> Naima Thompson as a child, she was uh, curious. She cared a lot about humanity and people and the state of people. She, Naima as a child, was very spoiled. I was the last of five for 15 years or 14 years until my, my other brother came. So I was very spoiled. And by the time I guess my mom got to me, she, had, she was a bit tired of the others, I guess. <laughs> and so I, I got away with a lot that the others didn't get away with. I also was not very um, academically inclined. I was not necessarily the smartest tool in the shed in terms of academics, but I was smart in other ways. I was street mm-hmm. smart. I was disobedient. I did, I did things that was not expected of me. And I was loved anyway. I was loved immensely by my parents as a child. I did not have a lot of ambition. I just always knew that I wanted to have an impact in the lives of others. That's really what I knew for myself as a young person. Yeah. In terms of moving from that place of being loved, being able to do what you wanted to do, how did that impact who you are as an adult today? I'll tell you what, I started playing pan when I was about 13 and I played steel pan with St. Francis Girls College. We at the time were using the TN Tech Power Stars pan yard. And so I started as a young person in that pan yard and then moved on to Casablanca and then on to phase two. And so My father supported my creativity with music to the extent that he wanted to live vicariously through me. I think Mm -hmm. when he was coming up as a young boy, he wanted to play pan, but it was considered a badge on sort of thing. And so he wasn't allowed to. When I joined St. Francois and they had a steel band and I didn't really know what that meant or what that was, my dad said I can join. And so I felt supported creatively in that way from very young. And I was lucky enough to play in all the panorama festivals. And my parents did whatever was required for me to be a part of that experience growing up. And so I think in terms of having support and having love and being backed, I've always had that. I think for me, I realized that I was creative in the steel band, in the pan yard. I never learned to read music as many of us did not. And so I figured out that I was creative through that process. And I, I didn't become a musician as an adult. In another life, I think I would seriously be a musician. It's my secret dream. I could agree with you there. I think if 
I were to be able to do anything without failure, that is exactly what I, I would probably want to be a producer. Mm. Yes. I know you're heavily into drama, you're heavily into education. That has become your life's work. Yeah. When did that bit of your creativity step in? When did that journey start? <laughs> Yes, I um, never wanted to be a teacher. I can't even, I don't even understand how I, you know, we have in our minds what we think we want to do, but the universe knows what we should be doing. Indeed. I thought I wanted to be a filmmaker. I thought I mm. wanted to be into, in television broadcasting, that sort of thing. Um, I thought I wanted to be into theater, producing theater. This is what I left Trinidad to go study in New York mm-hmm. City when I was uh, 20 or so. My parents were fortunate enough that they were able to send me to mm-hmm. New York City to study. And when I got to New York City in 1991, I hustled for the first year and it was quite grueling. From January to about October, I put a serious grind in to make any kind of money I could make. And then I ended up going for this interview. Someone guided me to a, a place called the Harbor for Boys and Girls in Harlem. And I went for an interview to be an assistant drama teacher with Kathy Kennedy. And she interviewed me and I did not have a single skill that she needed from me. I was a freshman in university and I didn't know any. So I didn't really have what she required of me. But I was hungry. I was hungry for life. And I was hungry to be a part of something, something bigger than myself. And I, I, in the, when I say I was hungry, I mean metaphorically and literally, I was hungry. I didn't have money. My parents paid for my tuition, but my livelihood was on me. And I just didn't have resources. And so I took a job in teaching as a means to an end. I was in university and I said, you know what, let me take this job so I could eat some food and um, pay my rent and whatnot. And then, and, and then I never left the teaching field. If you had asked me as a teenager what I want to be, being a teacher would have been the furthest thing because I've given so much trouble as a young person. I just never wanted, I didn't want, you know, the karma to come back. You feel me? <laughs> so how did I get into the craft of teaching and the love of teaching? It was through a necessity. Mm-hmm. And this woman saw me and saw my hunger and recognized, you know what? She does not have the skills, but God, she has some drive in her. So Kathy Kennedy took a chance on me and brought me in as her assistant. And that's when I started teaching. And I have never stopped since. That would be October 1991. Wow. And and I'm guessing that you have, I guess, based on your own childhood or your own experience as being a child giving trouble in school, I guess (laughs) you can now take that and relate. Well, this is why it works. This is why it works. Because the goody-two-shoe child who grows up to be a teacher, they yeah. don't know what to do with people like me. Right. You know, so it, it, the creativity comes from the spontaneity, and the spontaneity is a respect to the process. Being able to be in the moment with every learner in front of you calls for your capacity to be spontaneous, to be flexible, to be open, to be ready to give. Because these learners are human beings, and they themselves are standing in a measure of confusion particularly in the adolescent stage. They're standing in a measure of confusion and lack of, of understanding of their identity in relation to the world around them, you see. So they don't know who they are necessarily. So the teacher who was, gets in front of that class to work with those 18 to 30 kids, depending on the type of school it is, 
you got to be spontaneous and you got to be creative because it is in the spontaneity that the magic happens, that the connections are made and that the learners learn. And so when we talk about creativity, yes, I'm a dramatic artist and yes, I have uh, training and background in the arts. And so there's a creativity embedded there. But when I talk about creativity on this level, I also want to uh, bring to one's attention creativity in our choices, in our communication, in our exchange with one another, in the way we respond to one another. When we respond, are we responding reactively or are we responding creatively? And so the creative aspect of education for me is the beginning. And without that, then all you're really dealing with is a robot coming to try to push out content Mm -hmm. with no real concern as to how that lands with the children, you see. So for me, the creativity um, aspect of educating and and being a, a, a teacher has everything to do with connection and making, finding a way to make connections with the learners. Yeah. How much of our creative ability or, or let's let me ask you directly how much of your creative ability do you think is innate and what portion of it do you think you have developed here's what i think the creativity required to let's say play a piano or play an instrument or use your voice to sing that measure of creativity i think this is something that we have raw talent that can be groomed. And I have never done any formal training in any of the arts other than theater. So I'm trained in theater and I understand how to be a thespian, right? From my training, I didn't, I wasn't, that was not innate. That's something that I had to learn. What is innate is my compassion. And creativity comes out of an understanding of others, of a, of a, a compassion for others, out of empathy for others. And so because I am a global advocate, because I believe in the human being achieving their basic rights for life, and on top of that, then having the pillars in place to achieve their goals, because I believe in every human being must be given that right on this earth, I connect with the people in my charge. I connect with the students in my charge from that perspective. And I am therefore here to service you. I am here to give a service to you. And I do so in as much humility as possible. Mm -hmm. And the creativity, that creativity is innate. And that is what actually puts me in a position to succeed as an educator. I didn't learn that anywhere. That is a sense of being that I've held in my heart for my since I know myself. I didn't get a chance to mention that you aren't located in Trinidad and Tobago. <laughs> oh, true. Let us let's let's put it in context. I I okay. Let me sorry. Let me just put this in context. I am actually right now in Vietnam, and awesome. I started the journey as an international teacher when I left. When I left Trinidad to go to New York City, I left as a student. When I graduated from New York City from my university, I, and I started teaching as a full-time job, for me, that's when I started my international education uh, journey. From international education in New York, then I left and I came to Trinidad. I spent seven years in Trinidad and I taught at the International School of Port of Spain, and that's around the same time 
that I took that job, I started Necessary Arts, my nonprofit agency. And so I've worked full time at um, International School of Port of Spain for seven years and at the same time worked full time for Necessary Arts. Um, and that full time gig started at officially started at 3.30 in the afternoon. But of course, work was happening all throughout the day remotely or whatever. Yeah. And then from the International School of Port of Spain, I left and headed out to Qatar. And then from Qatar, I got a, I, I spent a year in Thailand. And from Thailand, I spent another year and a half in China. From China, I, um, I moved into Dubai for seven years. And now I'm in Vietnam. And that entire journey from my 30s to my, well, my sorry, my 20s to my, ah, I'm 51, hello. So from my 20s, from my 20s to now, I have I have taught in an international setting. I have only taught in an international setting. I have never taught in a Trinidad and Tobago public school. I've never taught in the Trinidad and Tobago local system. All right, so now I'm in Vietnam and um, I'm coming to the end of my teaching, class, classroom teaching career. I'm coming to the end of that and I'm reinventing myself now as a specialist, an educational drama specialist, you know? Within that span of those 20 years, you know, moving through the world, what would you say is one or two of the lessons that you have learned that you still take with you today? One lesson that I have learned is that in this life, we are alone. We have angels that support us and, we, and they appear in the human form along the way. However, what I truly believe in is my life now, and I've accepted it. I am alone. And that reality hit home really hard for me when I was diagnosed with cancer. Because there is no there are no words to say to anyone and there is nothing that anyone is going to say to you that has any impact on what it is you have to deal with. The only person engaged in the conversation is yourself. And if you believe in God, God, right? Otherwise it's yourself. And the, this is when I had, I want to tell you, I had my, I had my faith in humanity restored when I was diagnosed and returned to Dubai and an entire staff lifted me up and supported me in a way that I will absolutely never forget. That community in Dubai at that particular school confirmed for me or brought back to my consciousness that we do live in a world where people care. Because that had been lost over the years, a lot of so many con out of bigger, bigger problems in the world that just send the message that humanity is lost constantly. When I was diagnosed with cancer and had to go through treatment for two years, my faith in humanity was restored. And at the same time, my understanding of life and our position in life as human beings, we've got to rely on, our, on ourselves. We are alone. At the end of it, in the brass, when, it, when, all the, when all the dust settles, 
you are alone laying with your consciousness, with your conscience and your thoughts and who you are and what it is you've done and what you haven't done and what you want to do and what you're going to do. But Lord, life is so fragile and you can die in a moment. So what have I learned in this course of 30 years that I hold very true to myself today? It is that I am alone and it's okay. And everybody must be okay with being alone, every human being. Now, this is not to say that I am not supported. Don't get me wrong. I I have support that I cannot even describe. And yet, in the mind and in the consciousness of self, I am alone. So this is one thing that I have learned and I have ex- experience has taught me, life has taught me, and I, and I hold true to it. And the other thing that I, that I hold very true to my engagement now as an adult, I mean not as an adult, now at age 51, if I have to talk to my 20-year-old self, I will say, I will say, Naima, anything that you believe in, you go for it, period. People love you. They want to, they care for you. They want to try to get the best for you. And they might say things that they think are good for you. And that's all right. But at the end of the day, whatever it is, you know in your heart, because what you know in your heart is really what the universe is saying to you. This is what I believe. And I believe that our lives are already set. Our lives are already set, destined. We just can't see it. And so with a measure of trust in the universe and defined and definite movement to what you believe in, things will align. And so for me, I believe sincerely and I have experienced it. So I speak from a place of no. Anything that you want in this life, in this world, you set the intention, you do the work, it will manifest, period. And this is a lesson that I can, if I can talk to my 20-year-old self, I will say, don't worry about a thing. Just get on with it. Just let's block out all the naysayers, block out all the worrying, all the worrying forces around you. Stay true to your heart and go and go get it. Yeah, these are the two things that I can say. I will tell my younger self. That was really interesting because I guess from that point of view, understanding that you are alone, you are the one being that has control over over what you are in the world makes yeah. it that much more manageable when having to deal with other people. Absolutely. Absolutely, without a doubt. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that it's not even one, it's not easy. It has taken me 30 years to be able to say this in all truth and stand and demonstrate it and live it. 10 years ago, I could not live what I've just said to you. Experience has brought me to the point where I can Mm -hmm. say this. Anybody who's been in any of my classes over the years, the kids will tell you, the adults who I've taught, people will tell you, oh, Naima is so intense. You know, so there's it comes with, you know, with this sort of attitude of knowing that you're by yourself and you have to hold your head and do your thing and da, da, da. it adds a layer of um, protection for self. Yeah. 
And so to protect yourself, you end up defending yourself a lot, you see. And so I was operating in a space for a long time of defense, and I didn't understand that. Mm. And so a person would want to communicate with me, and I am being offended by what is being brought to me for whatever reason, not having a strong sense of myself yielded a very unwelcoming response in many cases. Does that make sense? Because I didn't have a strong hold on who I was. I was always afraid. I was always responding from a place of of fear. I was always responding through my ego and, and, and these things, you see? And so now I can look back at myself and say, hey, anyone in this world that I have engaged with, that I've taught, that I've worked with, the people who I've touched are people who were able to see me for who I am and recognize that even though I was perhaps responding in an unwelcoming way, I always took care of them in the end. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I'm working with, with a group of eighth grade kids, that's about age uh, 14, 13, 14, and they are simply driving me to my last mental state and I lose it <laughs> as one could with mm-hmm, that age group, mm-hmm. it's not good enough to lose it and walk away and go home. Absolutely not. I have a responsibility to go to Sam and say, hey, you know, I, I don't like the way I engage with you. And I want you to know that I take responsibility for, for my own behavior and for what I've brought to you. And I sincerely am sorry for what you have experienced. So over the years, I have always, even if I do it wrong, I've, I, I always find a way to get to the learner to say, hey, are you okay? My bad. Yeah. But that understanding is what actually has led me to this place now. The understanding of knowing that Naima, it's okay to show up and to be unreasonable. It is. And we all have to be all right with that, you know, because life is, life is a struggle. So it's all right if you end up in a headspace where you're a little unreasonable, but you've got to be accountable for that. And you've got to be able to make sure that the other person is all right in the end. You know, and I think that this is something that that means a lot to me in the way I engage with my learners. Right. In speaking with you, I, I still get the Trini twang and, and all that, which, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> you know, me being away for so long. My question percolating in my mind is how did the culture of Trinidad and Tobago, what did you take away from Trinidad and Tobago that you still hold with you and helps you make your journey yeah. through the world? <laughs> I want to tell you that, that this question is a loaded question. And, <laughs> and my of my okay, all right. This is a topic that I have never spoken about to anyone. Right. So we're going to go for it. Okay, all right. Gotcha. Or when I say so, outside of my, my, my close circle. This is a topic that disturbs me deeply and confuses me deeply. And to be honest between you, I'm going to keep it real now, now that we're here. It is a topic that I don't know what to do with. Mm. I am lost. So, for example, sorry, my family lived in England for the first years of my life. My dad was in London with his five children and he, the government, I think, sent him to study. I don't know what, but he did his thing. And then we came back to Trinidad when I was about seven or so. I don't know. I might have numbers wrong. I, I don't know. But at any rate, I came back to Trinidad with a British accent. It was the first language that I learned. Understandable. I left Trinidad when I was a year old. I hadn't started to speak yet. So by the time I started to speak, I was in England. And so I learned to speak with a, with a British accent. I got to Trinidad. I went to Nelson Street Girls RC. 
And oh, wow, those kids were hard. It was rough. Child, let me tell you, that shit was wrong, but it was rough. <laughs> I forgive all of them. I love Miss Maydeen. I don't know if she's still alive, but Lord, she had my back. So here I am with this British accent in, in Nelson Street. Street. Yeah. You, you, mm-hmm. You'll hear where I tell you I went, eh? Because my parents went to Nelson Street Boys and my mom, my mom went to the girls, my dad went to the boys. So when they came back to Trinidad, they put us in the girls and boys school. So here we are. And I am with this British accent. So these children just was teasing me left, right and center. And I wanted nothing more than to learn how to speak Trini. Fast forward, I'm at St. Francois. Now I have a life in a paniard when I think I reach. <laughs> I'm a paniard. So I could do it now. <laughs> All right. So then I spent, you know, the rest of my teenage years in Trinidad. So I got it. All right. But I'm a, I'm a middle class Trinidadian in St. Francois. You know what that sounds yes. like. Then I leave and I go to New York and I find myself in a quandary because I find myself in a scenario where I am not living in Flatbush in the, in the Caribbean community. I have positioned myself, not, not intentionally, but I've ended up in scenarios where I am not in a Caribbean community. So my when I'm speaking, I'm speaking in what we know to be standard English. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So the dialect is shifting away from me because I am now forced to speak in standard English to be understood. All right. So I end up at a place like, let's say, the actor studio, which I don't, it's, it's, a, it's, it's the rock of theater in New York City. So the actor studio is where I did a lot of my um, training as a director. And I was the only Caribbean person in the space. Mm. Like, I can't even say I was the only Trinidad. I was the only Caribbean person in this space. Many times at the time that the tenure that I was there for about seven years, during that time span that I operated coming in and out of the actor studio, I did not meet another Caribbean person. And I think I only met two African Americans. So I was a minority. So having been in, in New York, and working pre- predominantly among African-Americans in Harlem, which is where a lot of my teaching took place. And then working in Hell's Kitchen at the Actors Studio. And then working downtown at the Blue Note Jazz Club. I'm finding myself more and more losing mm. my Trinidad dialect. Now, you have to appreciate that I did not return home for 11 years. Right. I stayed in New York the entire time. So by the time I got back home, I was like a, a, a Harlemite. You know, I was talking with what they call it Ebonics. Mm-hmm. Here we are. I even wrote a whole play in Ebonics. This is where I was because I was working with that demographic, right? So then I come back to Trinidad. And now I'm back to Trinidad at age 31 with a confused voice because between the British accent, the Trinidad secondary school voice, and the American voice, the New York voice now i have three voices happening coming out of me and i don't know who the, i don't know i don't know what's going on anymore mm-hmm. right then okay so i'm in trinidad and i'm dealing with that quietly in my mind i'm talking i'm moving around trinidad and the dialect is there and it's coming up and it's what okay i leave trinidad and i go to qatar well now i have to put the accent down completely i have to put the dialect down and i have to put the accent down if i want to be understood of course i can keep it <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but i would not be understood So since that time, I have been out of Trinidad and I have been teaching in international classrooms. Right. And I say to my children, this is how I introduce myself to my children, all of my classes. Hi, I'm Miss Thompson. I am from Trinidad and Tobago. 
I speak English. When I get passionate, you will hear. You will hear the sound of the Caribbean coming. (laughs) (laughs) That is when you straighten up. When the Caribbean voice comes on, settle it down. Because not much longer after that, it's going to turn into something else. So the kids know. They know me when, I, when everything is cool and we're good to go. I'm, I'm in standard. Mm-hmm. You start to act like a monkey or an idiot or a piece of rope. So, so you start to behave like you don't have a brain in your head. This is when the training starts to surface. <laughs> 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 it is so funny. And, 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 and what is beautiful about it is like I will literally break out into things like, Oh, God, Lord, send me something. Send me something. Let me try and get through this. Hello. So I, I say things like that, right? And the kids are like watching me. Like, huh. Oh, I might say something like, you really doing that right now? You, you really making sense with that right now? So I might say something like that, for example. They don't know what I've said, but they get the point. So, all right. So that's, that's dealing with the language aspect of right. my culture. Then... I would come home, and I believe I'm a, I'm a musician. Yeah? I have decided in my life I, I'm a musician. So when I was ill, recovering from cancer, I wrote seven songs. I've created my own album. It's called Detox Vibes. It doesn't have to go to iTunes or anywhere. It stays right here in my playlist, and I play it when I want. So I will come onto this keyboard and start to play and then try to sing. or But then, what, it gets confusing because... <laughs> What is coming out is a combination of hip-hop, soca, reggae. I don't know what's going on when I open my mouth to say something, you know? So it's very disturbing because I want to share my music with people, but I know they will laugh at me. (laughs) And this morning I said, you know what, Naima, you're going to put your song on Facebook and you're going to say, write the song you want to sing. (laughs) Here we are. Anyway, so culturally... I hook into food. Mm. This is what I hold on to from Trinidad and Tobago. Mm-hmm. The accent, the voice, the dialect, I, it pisses me off. Sorry, is that incorrect? My bad. It stresses me sometimes because I want to say things or I want to be, I just want to be Trini. Mm-hmm. In as much Trini as there is in me mm-hmm. still. It's me and I want to express myself this way, but it's, I can't, there's nobody around me communicating in this way. I'm alone. You bring me back to my mm-hmm. aloneness. I'm mm-hmm. alone in that. And so does anybody ever really get to know Naima? No, they just get to see the person that has to be understood in public. But they don't mm-hmm. know for real what all of this other stuff is, you know. I don't have a connection in Trinidad necessarily. I have my siblings. That's not, that's, that they are my siblings. but. I don't feel as if I can come to Trinidad and Tobago and live there and be respected and and accepted as a Trinidadian. I'm always looked at as a foreigner. Even when I return home, I'm treated like a foreigner before I even open my mouth. It's very interesting. It's It's very interesting. And then on the other side, on the flip side of that, the person behind the the counter is asking me something and I tell you, I don't know what the person is saying. I can't tell you what that person just said. It is the strangest thing. Mm, that's very interesting. It is. And I always have to, I feel so bad because 
then what what the hell is that? You know what I mean? So it's a dilemma that hurts me. It's a situation that I don't know what to do with. I don't. It's an identity crisis that I find myself in. And so I have accepted that I'm a global citizen and I'm going to just leave it at that with a Trinidad passport. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, really that's a long-winded response. No, actually, it, it it's, it's, it's very interesting. I've never heard anything like that in terms of being able to have to move between three cells. Yeah. You know what yes. I mean? Yes, it's, it's, and... it's a bit stressful, yeah. It is really stressful. And in the end, and you see, Trinidadians, we have a way of communicating that we understand. Yes. In general, okay? I'm not saying every Trinidadian communicates this way. But there is a way that we communicate that is in me. And that is always misunderstood. It's always misunderstood out here in the world. Mm-hmm. It's always misunderstood for aggression. It's misunderstood for, the, I don't even know what, like they don't even know what it is. You know what I mean? If, I, in a, if I'm in a staff meeting and somebody is talking some nonsense, you know, sometimes these meetings could go on and on and on and on and on, right? So sometimes you just want to go, you just need to go. And I have, I have little issues. I can't sit down anywhere for too long. So I'm ready to go. Yeah. And then a ding dong is talking some nonsense in the back somewhere. I don't know what. If the person at the front of the room is speaking, I want to be able to hear the person in the front of the room. And then some gremlin is in the back there talking to their friend about what I don't know. It creates a discord in my space. And I don't have the discipline to deal with that. Right. So my trininess starts to rise. And this is me. Oh, God, you hush now. Right? So I might say something like that, which a Trinidadian will say in a Trinidad staff meeting and it will go nowhere. We are right with that. Yes. Hello, yes. I'm being called in somebody's office to be told that I have to figure out and learn how to communicate and to be among people. So this is the difference. This is, it's all about navigating and moving your way through the world so that you can be understood, respected, and taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, excel at what you do. Ah, mm. There is no room for mediocrity. When you are out here as a Caribbean black person, and I can't talk of a Caribbean, I wonder how Caribbean, I wonder how, um, how Trini whites, I'm really interested. I want to know how a Trini white person, how do they function out here in the world? You know, because it must be very confusing for their listeners. You know, you have to also navigate not only your Trininess, I have to navigate your blackness. Then you have to navigate your womanness. Then you have to navigate your lesbianness. <laughs> right? So it's all kind of ness that you have to kind of navigate through a world of people that don't understand you. In some cases, are simply racist against you. And there's, that's just who they are. And that's all right. The world has to be balanced. But it, it, it is a matter of stress. Yeah, I hear that. How has your creativity or the way that you express yourself creatively changed over that period of time? I have become more and more emboldened, even though I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear me say this. Before, I would always be concerned about other people's response or reaction. Now I have become so emboldened that I don't, I just don't, I recognize that other people's reactions and responses have absolutely nothing to do with my purpose on earth. (laughs) And so my creativity now has heightened and, and there's a lot, like I, my, I am so creative in my work that I literally can enter a workspace of 25 kids 
for the first time with no planning and roll out a kick-ass product. And that creativity can happen because I am completely confident in who I am. I don't, ha- I, don't, I'm, I don't operate from a place of fear at all in my life anymore. I have no inhibition. I don't care. I am singing my song if I want to. I am dancing my dance if I want to. I wear my earbuds all the time and out here in the world, if I'm walking from here to the mall, it's a 12-minute walk, I'm dancing to the mall. I'm chipping down the road. Creativity is something that I don't want anybody stifling. I don't want anybody cramming. I don't want anybody jamming. I don't want anybody blocking. So I make sure and give it the room that it deserves. And I, again, I'm not only talking artistic creativity. I am talking the creativity of engaging with people the creativeness in engaging with people. How has it changed? I'm happy to walk into an elevator and see the the maintenance guy and talk and have a time with that guy and engage in a creative way with that guy. How have I changed creatively? I have allowed myself to be free. You mentioned there that, you know, you you put on your earbuds and, you know, you're walking down the road, you're chipping down the road. Chipping down the road. Yes. I just envisioned as you saw you listening to when you took it down there. <laughs> right? But is there is there something that you actually or other things that you do to put yourself in a creative state of mind? My dancing is my is 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 my and I'm not a trained dancer. Dancing, I everywhere I go walking from the front gate of the school it's a four or five minute walk up to the main building i'm dancing it puts me in a good mood it brings the freedom that i crave for and that i must have in my life and i'm able to engage so to set my creativity in motion it typically involves music and movement some people it involves meditation that is too still for me (laughs) i'm a mover and if i am in a rabbit hole the minute I put music on and start dancing, I can work my way out. I know I have to go teach an 11th grade class, theater arts, and this class in particular might be giving me a, a really hard time in, in turning in work and being meeting deadlines and doing what they need to do. And I know that if I, if, that I can't, I have to enter the space in a creative place. It is dance that gets me there. So like the kids may enter the classroom and meet music playing mostly soca music Mm. and me dancing and so when they come in i don't have to take them too seriously because i'm dancing you see so when i tell you that music and dance is what motivates my creativity or stimulates my creativity it is real this is this is where it is if there was one thing you would say that you had to sacrifice to be where you are today is that something that you could articulate Ooh, that's a very good question. I think I've sacrificed my relationship with my family. I think I've sacrificed my relationship with my siblings. I, you know, uh, sorry, I'm getting really emotional. <sighs> you know, I think I, I just sort of just kept going one year after the next, trying to hold my own and do for myself and just sort of, you know, position myself where I can really look at my life and be proud of myself. And I think I think I I, I sacrificed my relationship with my siblings unknowingly. But as again having been ill, having 
when I got cancer and I laid for so many hours in so much pain in my head with so much time to think and process my whole life. Um, I can say that uh, I do wish that I had a, a that I had invested more uh, or that I had created more opportunities for me to be closer to my siblings. Because I'm not, not that, you know, we're close in a very, euphoric, in, a, in a sort of euphoric way. Um, and I don't know if this is true for a lot of Trinidadian families, but I know, I know that we have a deep, 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 deep connection and, and love. My parents instilled this, you know, and so we, we love each other in a very untelling way. And we don't necessarily communicate it to each other. And if I have to, if the one thing that was sacrificed with me leaving Trinidad and coming out here in the world is a relationship with each and every one of my siblings. Uh, I can't really, I can't really undo that. I can't undo it. Or the only thing I can do now, we, we now we have, I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if, as we have become older, now that we're sitting 50 years and up, um, of course, Kerwin, my younger brother, he's in his 30s. But I, I don't know if it is just time and age and wisdom that has brought us to a place where, you know, now we have a WhatsApp group together and we communicate, you know, you know, you know, we're getting there. Um, but both of our parents moving on, my dad passed last year. And um, so now I'm, my parents have gone and I and I find myself out here in Vietnam and out here in the world, you know, and I, I don't want to go back home. I don't want to live in Trinidad again because I don't think I can. But I am glad that I'm glad that I have come to a place of understanding what has been sacrificed and um, and being being okay, <laughs> being okay in it. You feel me? What has helped you persevere and and not give up? My mom, first I gave her. <laughs> Oh man, I gave my mom so much trouble coming up. I think I embarrassed my family a lot coming up. And just wanting to always make her proud and just because I believe that they can see us, yeah. I believe that when they when we cross over, we can see our loved ones still and you know, and persevere that perseverance has to do with taking accountability for totally messing up as a teenager, as an even a younger adult, you know, I just got it wrong. I really did. I got, I got so much wrong. And so for me, when I hit my 20s and my parents invested in my education and sent me to New York and paid for my uh, tertiary education, the perseverance comes from mm-hmm. seeing that for seeing my parents as two human beings in the world who didn't have to pay for my tertiary education. And they did. And because from, as far as I could remember, my whole secondary, my whole secondary school experience was all about fun and games and doing things that I should not have been doing and wasting time. I didn't apply myself at all. I don't even know how I got four twos and two threes, but I did not apply myself academically at all. And I don't, I don't know how I got those passes. I repeated at, Saint, at Bishop Centenary. I got the same passes. I just was not applying myself. And so when I hit university, when I hit that stage, I was like, no, you got to get this right. 
So the perseverance comes from not ever wanting to be who I was as a younger person. I'm going to get it right. And I'm going to inspire young people to have fun. And I tell young people all the time, yo, live your life. You're a teenager. Do what you got to do, but don't waste your time. And do not waste your education. It's here. It's now. Get it. I tell you, I'm so passionate about education. I'm so passionate about adults getting it right because we get it wrong. Oh, we get it wrong so many times and at the cost of a life of a teenager. You know, and I just here in, in Vietnam alone, there have been, since I've been teaching in these two years, I've, I've, there have been kids who have taken their lives in Vietnam. A student that I taught in Dubai when she was in sixth grade, she, after middle school at eighth grade, she left and went to Texas. She killed herself at age 18. We're getting it wrong in many, many instances, and I am passionate about getting it right. So I really want to want to position myself where I can teach teachers, where I can inspire teachers to give brain breaks during their teaching blocks, and to see these kids as human beings, really, really, and stop seeing them as just robots coming in here to to do everything we say they have to do. No, they're human beings. And maybe they don't feel like doing that right now. Maybe their parents were fighting last night and they, don't, they can't get themselves to do that right now. Take into account. Take into account that every child is a human being. Just like you and me. Yeah. Has there ever been a time, Naima, that you've doubted the talent that you have? Of course. I have been insecure. Yes, I have doubted. And that doubt has come from a place of taking things personally, taking what someone has to say personally and allowing that person's opinion about what I'm doing on, or how I'm doing it to land on me too harshly. And then when it lands on me harshly, my ego flares up and a whole other set of nonsense happens and then it's a wrap. <laughs> I tell you what, when I have experienced self-doubt, it doesn't last for very long. It doesn't linger because I take myself to my mirror when I am doubting myself. And I say, absolutely not. You look at yourself. You look at yourself. Look at who you are and look at where you've come from and what you're accomplishing. No one is perfect. And what you have to offer is already a gain. So even if there are flaws in it, that is absolutely acceptable. And so I talk myself back up onto the rock, you know. But yes, I do doubt. Not, I don't, I, I can't say that I doubt myself ever as an educator. I'm very strong. I'm, I'm confident as an educator and I know what I'm doing. Uh, where I doubt myself actually has more to do with being creative with my faculty or with my team, with, 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 my, with the teachers in the space, with the admin, you know, I've, I've lacked creativity in my communication with adults at the workplace. And I think, I think this is where I'm very insecure. This is where I, 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 because I know that I am dropping the ball in that area of communication, it weakens me even. Sometimes it makes me even weaker in, from, the, uh, from an insecure place. And 
still I rise out of it and give myself the confidence required. I've taught myself, Naima, even if you're in a space of doubt, do it anyway. This is the this is the approach. So even if I'm doubting myself and I have that voice in my head pulling me away from my dream and my goal and my creativity, I go to the mirror and I have to really tell myself, you are great, you are beautiful, you are gifted, you have a purpose in life, you have something to do, get out there and do it. I'm, I'm not kidding you, eh? I'm not making it, this is how I live my life. And because I live alone, this is what I have to do and what I have done and how I deal with um, self-doubt when it surfaces. Apart from, from your own self-talk, is there a piece of advice that someone would have imparted onto you, whether it's something that you read or whatever that you could share with me? I tell you what, I read a book when I was 14 called A Basket of Flowers. My mother gave it to me. I will never forget it. It's a little blue book. I can't remember the author's offhand. But in that book, it told the story of a young girl who was wrongly accused for stealing something that she hadn't stolen. A bird flew through the window and stole the ring off of the cushion. But the owner of the home thought the servant girl stole it. And that is the gist of the story. That book at age 14 instilled something inside of me that I live to to this day, which is no matter what people accuse you of or no matter what people think of you, always be true to yourself. Remain true to yourself. And that came from a very young age. And so I've always reached for being as authentic as I could be in any given situation. And how the chips fall, they fall. More recently, I have a quote from Bertolt Brecht, who says, intelligence is not to make no mistakes, but to quickly see how to make them good. Bertolt Brecht is a German theater practitioner who invented what we call breaking the fourth wall. That quote inspires me, and I use it quite a lot in my life and with my kids, because it is important for me to know and for people to know that mistakes are the only way we grow. And anybody walking around trying to live a life of no mistakes, you might as well put yourself in a coffin and call it a day because it makes no sense. There is zero growth without mistakes and you have to grow. So mistakes are welcomed. What is not welcome is that you stand up looking at the mistake for the next 10 years. What would you like to be most remembered for, Naima? I would like to be remembered for necessary arts. I'd like to be remembered for the courage that it took for me to come to Trinidad and Tobago in 2002, not knowing anything about the system or how it worked. I didn't get involved with anybody's opinion, and I found it necessary arts. Lydia Ledgerwood and Penelope Spencer came on board, and I want to be remembered for starting necessary arts in Trinidad and Tobago and taking it to Kenya, Turkey, Uganda, Dubai. Vietnam. I want to. I want Necessary Arts to be remembered and my name to be attached to it as an organization, a, a nonprofit. In fact, I want to say that it was officially registered in 2002. However, the work started in New York in 1996 or so. 
And it is like some people have children. I had necessary art. And this program means so much to me. But unfortunately, right now in my life, I have had to say, you know, you're grown up now. It's 27 years I've been dealing with you. You're grown. And I now have to take care of myself. So Penelope Spencer takes care of necessary arts in Trinidad right now. And I do whatever is happening in the outreach out here globally. The good news is the work in Kenya is sort of sustaining itself. So I don't have to travel to Kenya as much anymore. But I've turned my attention to myself now because it is time for me to figure out where I'm going to be at age 60 and how am I going to be at age 60 financially. I've worked a full-time job at international schools to earn income so that I can do my humanitarian and global advocacy through Necessary Arts. And now I look at my life and even though I may not have the money in the bank, I look at Necessary Arts and I'm proud. And I want to be remembered for bringing that into this space. Can you just share with the audience what Necessary Arts is, what's its purpose? And- Thanks so much for asking that. Necessary Arts started when I recognized that the children I was dealing with in New York, in Harlem, New York, I realized that I needed to do more. And so I started an, an evening program called Necessary Arts. And we would meet and we would do da- hip-hop dance and acting and whatnot, blah, blah, okay. And then I wanted to know what was happening in Trinidad with kids in this regard. And so I came home and there were things happening, but not in the way, not in the regard that I intended. And so I said, let me, let me register necessary arts here. And I did in 2002. And so it is a nonprofit arts organization with a Bertolt Brecht, Augusto Boal root. So when I say this, I say that the intention of Necessary Arts, it is to stimulate minds through artistic expression. We are not trying to make the next Denzel Washington. What we're trying to do is to bring, is to be creative and to bring people to their spaces of creativity. And I spoke about creativity earlier, not necessarily being artistic, you know, I'm talking about being a creative in your life. So um, in your life choices, in the way you engage with people, et cetera. So Necessary Arts is an is a organization that has been hanging on by a thread for 20 years. It is the good money. Is, my salary has funded quite a bit of it. Um, Penelope Spencer offers acting classes in Trinidad, and that pays for, uh, pays for the upkeep of what's happening with it, but we're not really, we don't get, we're not, in fact, I've stopped applying for grants for necessary arts because I'm tired and I don't, I can't be bothered. I'm just doing the work. I'm doing the work and I'm doing it. I'm doing what can be done. And if somebody notices it or somebody cares about it one day and they want to put millions of dollars behind it and make it an institution, then great. In the meantime, we are happy with um, the fact that we've touched many, 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 many lives. When you look at um, actors on stage in Trinidad right now and actors on screen in Trinidad right now, they've come through the necessary arts doors. When you look at Reagan Devines with Gael, when you look at, I mean, there's so many people right now in Trinidad who have come through necessary arts and come through Penny, Penelope Spencer particularly. 
that I'm cool with that. When I look at Dubai and Kenya and I see the lives, the orphanages in Kenya that I'm working with, the FGM young ladies that I'm working with in Kenya, it's a lot going on. Eh? And I don't have time anymore or interest in my life to prove to anybody that this is something worth backing. It's either you, you see it, you come to know it, you, it sparks your interest, you want to give something to make it work, or move on. <laughs> we, will, we are doing it anyway, is what it is. Necessaryarts.org is our website if you wanted to check out more and see what we're about. Yeah, if you're in Trinidad and you want to know more about it, actually, Penelope Spencer is the person that is behind it right now, and you can look us up and yeah, get involved. Sure. Definitely yeah. put all those contact details in the show notes that you will be able to find at a bigboxofcrayons.com. Naima Thompson, thank you very much for your time. Oh, man. Thank you for having me. I hope I have inspired uh, someone. Without a doubt, I'm, I'm sure you have. And I just want to implore you to continue doing the work despite, despite the challenges that may arise. You've been doing it. And I just want to say thank you for what you've done thus far. And looking forward you know, to seeing you elevate and do more. Yes. Go to the next level. Yes, 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 indeed. But thank you so much. I appreciate You're this so welcome. much. I'm Naima Thompson in a big box of crayons, remaining open for endless orange possibilities. Please share this episode with someone who would find it valuable. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to the show now on Apple Podcasts to get new episodes as they become available. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. It would help us reach other listeners just like you. Find additional content on abigboxofcrayons.com. Follow us on Instagram at abigboxofcrayons. The We Are Crayons podcast is a production of A Big Box of Crayons. All rights reserved. Until next time, friends, remember... We are all the same in the fact that we'll never be the same. Stay colorful and thank you for listening.